May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. What do you want to be when you grow up? You remember that being asked when you were a kid? People would say to you, what do you want to be when you grow up? They still ask me that. I don't know what they mean. But what do you, what do you want to do? It's a, it's, a, it's a vocational question, isn't it? It's an occupational question. What do you want to do with your life when you grow up? And when I was a kid, I, I always wanted to be something like a firefighter or a policeman, you know, a forest ranger, probably from watching too much Yogi Bear, or, um, or uh, maybe even an astronaut. That was a big one, especially an astronaut. And this is what we all wanted to be. We, I grew up, I was born just six months um, before the, uh, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. And so, you know, growing up, astronauts were big. And, and that's what we wanted to be. We wanted to be an astronaut. At least all the boys wanted to be an astronaut. I'm not sure what the girls wanted to be. I don't know because, um, you know, I, I grew up as uh, one of three boys. Um, I was the fourth of seven grandsons on my mother's side. I, of course, um, am the father of four sons. We have lots of experience with boys, you know. I wasn't sure what the girls wanted to be. I think they wanted to be astronauts, too. I don't know, but maybe astronauts. We want a future full of excitement and adventure. And so grown-ups would ask that question. What do you want to be? If you were grown-up, what do you want to be? And and I'm not sure if grown-ups still ask that question. Maybe they do. I think perhaps I've asked it of a a child or two. What do you want to be when you grow up? But I don't know that we still have that sort of, um, that sort of, you know, kind of longing in, in children to be like uh, these, these uh, noble civil servants. Instead, I, I think our culture has changed so much that that question probably, um, probably is cringeworthy when the answer comes because our, our culture has become a very, a very celebrity-oriented culture, almost a celebrity-obsessed culture. And so the role models have become so different I think children might say, if they were asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? They wouldn't say, I want to be and give a vocation. They'd probably say, I want to be like. I want to be like Beyonce. <laughs> you know, I want to be like Scarlett Johansson. I don't know. I want to be like, uh, you know, somebody like that. Mel Gibson. I don't know, whoever they are. You know, there's a sense in which our obsession with celebrity has kind of, kind of filtered all the way through. And, and I know it's not completely new, but it is new in a way. Our culture is so obsessed with celebrity that now you can be famous for not ever doing anything other than being famous. You're famous for being famous. You don't have to sing or dance or act or anything. You can just suddenly, and you can probably think of a few names of people who are famous for doing nothing. They've done nothing noteworthy other than simply be born, which everybody seems to be able to have done. Anyway, so here they are, famous in the culture, a culture obsessed with celebrity. And, and then you have a problem. You know, what happens when a celebrity does something that violates the culture's sense of decency? What happens when a, when a celebrity does something that's, that's so outrageous that people, you know, gasp and hold their breath, you know? Because what's the use of having celebrities around if you can't use them to sell soda pop and cell phones? I mean, that's their real, their real uh, kind of contribution to the culture, isn't it? That they can pitch various products. So, so we, we have them here to do this, and then they go and do something really, really stupid, and then they make our companies look really, really stupid by association. And so you, you, you've got this, this sort of tension where you need celebrities, but you need them to be on their semi-best behavior most of the time, Right? 
I was reading this um, this uh, paper in, in kind of research for this uh, sermon, and this fellow, his name is Noah Kressler, um, is a, uh, a JD student, a, a, a law school student, and he wrote a paper on um, the uh, the effectiveness and legality of morals clauses in celebrity contracts. Let me just tell you what he says here in sort of his, his prelude to it. He says, studies that um, find that, that advertisements generally affect consumers more favorably than non-celebrity advertisements, particularly among teenage customers. And so he cites these studies that that people are affected by celebrity versus non-celebrity sort of endorsements. And then he goes on to say this. He says, companies looking to differentiate their products among the barrage of marketing messages and to entertain and influence the purchasers, excuse me, purchases of potential customers turn to celebrities as relatively cheap, easy, and familiar way to manipulate the customer perception of a product. We will buy stuff if a celebrity tells us to buy it. We do. And you're like, no, I don't. But yes, we do. There's research out there that, that people, do, well, maybe nobody here, but you know, it's like they're all the rest of the people. They buy stuff because they're told to do so. It actually is is um, helpful and, and and public perception can be changed simply by a respected celebrity kind of giving an endorsement we respond positively but what happens when that celebrity does something that outrages us what happens when all of a sudden this person that you trusted and thought so highly of suddenly you know does something kate moss this uh this model shows up on the front page of a newspaper with cocaine all over her face. And all of a sudden people were, oh, you know, aghast. Um, you perhaps remember uh, the late Michael Jackson and the, the sort of innuendo surrounding him and how it affected his, uh, his kind of um, relationship with major uh, soda pop and th- that sort of thing, endorsements they used to get. And, of course, what would your perception be if I mentioned the name Bill Cosby and how that has changed just in the past year? And I'm not passing judgment on any of these people. Please don't hear me saying that, because that's certainly not what I intend at all. But what I'm saying is, is that there are ways in which celebrities can suddenly, you know, have a different kind of light in the culture. And this has happened with clergymen, too. We, we, have, uh, we have not been so pristine. There's a, there's a great many cases where clergymen have harmed the faith and the, um, the sense of, of respect for the church in the world. So I guess in that celebrity obsessed culture. Maybe the message is, be careful, right? Be careful who you look up to, because you never know what happens tomorrow. In Jesus' um, words in, in, in Mark's gospel, he sort of deals with a similar issue, showing us that, that role models and their failures are not altogether new. This is something that's been around for quite a while. You have to imagine the scene. Um, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's Passover time. There are lots of people there. He is in the temple. The, the temple has this um, sort of courtyard where people kind of gather out, and, and, and it's very large. And so you have large crowds of people in a sort of outside courtyard. And Jesus is there, and, he, and he's with a, a big crowd of people who are pressing in. They, they want to hear what he has to say. They've been following him down the road, and, and here they are in Jerusalem, and he's teaching. And so there's this, this kind of this great interest in what he has to say. And because it's Passover, there are also all sorts of, uh, of religious persons there. There are priests. 
Um, there are people who are who are very pious lay people um, called Pharisees. There are there are people there who are scholars. They they have this look of um, of, of well educated people. They're called scribes. They're there as well. They're called scribes because the word for scripture and the word for scribes is the same word. These are these are biblical uh, authority students. They're they're scholars in their own right. And it's this important religious time, of course, it's Passover. And Jesus gives this strange warning. Will you take your bulletin and look with me at the, at the gospel text? Because I really want you to see this here. At the very beginning of the gospel lesson, it's, Mark writes, Teaching in the temple, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes. Beware of the scholars. The biblical scholars, the religious scholars. And this is an odd thing to say because it would be like us being on a major university, a major Christian university. And we're sitting there and, and here come the scholars walking down. Maybe it's, maybe it's commencement, you know, they're all robed up in regalia. Little hat on, I should have brought my little Tam, you know, put it on. Um, and they, they, here they are and, and then, and somebody say, watch out for those guys. Or, or we're at a big cathedral and, and here come all the clergymen in, you know, all robed up and somebody said, Beware of those guys. Why would I? These are not the people you're to beware of. These are not the people you're to watch out for. They're the people that you're to emulate. Right? Watch out for them. Why? Why do I watch out for them? Look. Look what does he say. There are four things that they do that, that cause them to have, for one to have great concern. They like to look at this, walk around in long robes. Great work in Greek. Stalas. Stoles. They love to wear their large stoles and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Reverend Father. Uh, and they, they love the best seats in the synagogue, the ones that are right up front. They love those seats. And, and they, they also like the places of honor at a banquet. Here you, come, sit right here, close to the food and the wine. You know, this is where you are to sit. And I ask myself, well, what's wrong with these things? Do you look at it? Is this why I'm to beware of these people? Because there's nothing wrong with these things, are there? No. No, it's not the things themselves, but what they do. There's not the fancy clothes, the respectful greetings, or the best seats in the church, or the ones at the banquet, the, the, the guest of honor. Nothing wrong with that, but what they do, verse 40 these people wear all these things, do all these things, and yet they devour widows' houses for this, and for the sake of appearances say long prayers. Devour the homes of widows. Um, we have four sons, so this, this idiom works at our house all the time. You're going to eat me out of house and home, right? I mean, you, you, literally, but they eat so much that it costs a lot, right? It, these, these religious professionals will literally consume the homes of widows for their own sake. The most vulnerable people in all of society, the most needy, the, most, the, the closest to, to abject poverty, they would take everything from them as a means of making their lives more comfortable and easy. These religious professionals, these Bible scholars, they love to appear religious, Jesus says, but when it comes down to real religion, 
which is caring for those who are most needy and most vulnerable, they would use that person to make themselves more comfortable. That's not authentic. It's not the outward trappings. That's not what Jesus is saying, beware of them. Beware of them because they love the outward trappings, the outward appearances, but inwardly do not have the core of true religion. They do not have the core of true devotion. It is all an appearance. It's all, it's all outward, no substance at all. They're frauds. But, conversely, you should be like someone. And a poor widow walks up to the treasury. There are 12 boxes there. They, they, they're shaped in the shape of trumpets. There are, there are these pillars, or excuse me, not 12, 13. 13 pillars in, in, the, in the courtyard. And there are 13 boxes where people would put money, like collection boxes. And they were shaped like trumpets. And so they, you kind of would go and you would, you would put a, uh, you know, an offering in those. They weren't required offerings. Nobody had to give this money. But they were to put them in there as sort of a, a, an expression of devotion and love for God. And, and so people would go and put money in these trumpets. And here's this little widow who goes and she puts her offering in this trumpet. She has just two lepta is what Mark puts in his Greek. Two lepta, the smallest coin in the ancient world. It was worth half of a penny. It wasn't even a penny. It wasn't even like our smallest port in currency, a, a penny. It was half a penny. It, it was so minutely small that it, it, it couldn't buy anything. It wasn't worth, it probably wasn't even worth the copper that it was made out of. It was a tiny little penny, and she puts two of them in, her last two. Now, this is probably a familiar story to you, right? A widow's mite, she goes in, she puts in two little, a mite, a penny, she goes in and puts two little coins in there. Probably heard this one before. Have you ever thought about this? Because I never thought about this until this week. That she had two. She could have kept one, right? I mean, she would have given 50% of her income. And nobody else was given 50%. She could have given one, and it would have been half of everything that she had. Why not just keep one for you? Go buy some bread, for crying out loud. You know, there, there's no shame in buying bread. But she doesn't. She gives both. And she doesn't give out a compulsion. Nobody's making her. It's not irreligious not to give. She gives because she wants to. She gives out of devotion, out of authenticity. She doesn't even complain about the corrupt temple system. And it was corrupt. It was thoroughly corrupt. And she probably knows it, but she doesn't complain about it. Jesus doesn't even, he doesn't even, you know, kind of castigate her for giving to a corrupt temple, even though he himself. Beware. Beware. If you had a pencil, I'd tell you to underline that. Beware. But then down in, in, later on in verse 43, he says this. Amen, I say to you. Truly, I say to you. Beware of these people. Pay attention to this one. Don't do like these people do. Do like this one does. Don't be, you know, disingenuous frauds. Be authentic. Be genuine like this woman here. The contrast couldn't be bigger. What makes the widow such a good role model? What makes this, this woman who gave her last two pennies, her last two half a pennies, such a good role model? Well, I think, first of all, she trusted fully in God. 
Uh, we were talking this morning, just kind of throwing out some quotes. And, and, uh, and David reminded me of this quote by Phillips Brooks that, that said, he, he said, when God is all that you have, you'll discover that God is all that you need. When he's all that you have, you discover that he's all that you need. But as long as we hold on to everything else, then he's not all that we need. The widow knew that, that God is all that, she ha- all that she has and all that she needs. Here we are. We're in the midst of a, a stewardship campaign. I wonder what it would do to our, our, our view of stewardship if we really believe this. We really believe that God is all that we need. She lived for an audience of one. That's another thing she does. An audience of one. In a, in a celebrity-obsessed culture where we're, we're worried about, you know, how many people, you know, I know. And you, none of you pay attention to this. I know you don't. But some people pay attention to, to like, Facebook, you know. Um, how many people like the picture that they put up? You know, I only got 27 likes on this. I can't believe it. it's, a, it's a good picture. You know, what they, what's the matter with them? You know, they, they get obsessed with, with even our own little version of celebrity. This widow doesn't think that anybody's watching her. She thinks the only one who's watching is God. And imagine how that would change our lives if we lived as if God was the only one that mattered. This is integrity, right? This is what integrity is. Somebody has said integrity is the way that you behave when you think that no one else is watching. You know, this is, this is through and through integrity. I saw this cartoon of a, one time of a clergyman. He's getting ready. He's got his collar on, you know. He's getting ready for church and his wife is standing next to him. They're like in the bathroom mirror and they're both kind of getting ready. And, um, and the wife says to her uh, clergyman husband, she says, how about we mix things up today? Um, when you go to church, you'll be mean and grumpy. When you come home, you can be witty and charming. But, you know, I, I thought that was kind of clever. Um, yeah, how, about, how about we be the kind of person that we want to be all the time? Live as if only God's watching it, only God matters. One more thing. She, she, um, she, concerned, she was concerned rather with more things, how things were, rather than the way they appeared to be. She was concerned more about the way things were than the way they appeared to be. Again, in a culture that is celebrity obsessed, appearances seem to be all that matters. But not with this woman. She's more concerned about what is authentic and what's genuine and real. There's no room for pretense. Whereas the scribes only wanted to pretend to be religious. They wanted to seem to be religious, but not inwardly actually be any different. It was heartfelt devotion. You know, in nearly um, two decades of, of being a clergyman, I have met, oh my, just hundreds and hundreds of people um, who are, you know, who want religion in their life. They want, they want Jesus. They, they are members of the church. And, and I have met um, some people that would just amaze you. I could tell you about this fellow named Marvin Carey um, who would come to me and he would say to me, Joe, I pray for you every single day. I'm like, oh, Marvin, that's really nice. Thank you. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I mean it. I pray for you every day. Wow, pray for me every day? Or Howard Johnson, when I was, a, you know, uh, first out of seminary in my first parish, and, I mean, you know, they paid me, like, as much as they could, but it wasn't very much, and, and it was very difficult. I mean, it was lean days, and, and Howard would show up at our house, and he'd have, uh, you know, this big giant ham and 15 pounds of bacon. I'm not kidding you, 15 pounds of bacon. I'm like, how, I don't want to, I mean, I love bacon, but 15 pounds, you know, like this massive box. People like um, 
like Ruby Johnson, Howard's wife. She never, I mean, never in a sour mood. Anytime you could catch her, like she was the sweetest person you'd ever want to meet in your life. And, and she always wanted you to know that you were loved. And so when you walked up to her house or walked in, she would grab you and like hug you. And she would kiss you. And she'd kiss you so hard it hurt, you know. And I, I remember Abby used to say, I, I don't know if I can go over to Ruby's today. I feel kind of tender, you know, like it's going to, I'm, I'm not ready, you know. Be prepared for this one. This guy, Goose Dregu in Kentucky, who had the hardest time quitting smoking, really struggled to quit smoking cigarettes. When he finally quit, he decided to quit growing tobacco in his backyard too. You can only grow tobacco and sell it on a, on a portion lot. He decided he wasn't going to grow tobacco anymore because he didn't want to contribute to anybody else's bad habits, even though it cost him a whole lot of money. Bert Dills, whose wife had Alzheimer's disease, and every day he would tenderly share his memories with her as if they were her own because she had lost hers. When I'd go visit him and he'd just go through and tell the stories, all of them, when they were in the war and how she worked at the, you know, up in, up in Dayton, Ohio, near where I was from, and she'd work in the factories making bombs while he was over in Europe. You know, he would share his memory and, and cared for her and he was so tender and, and kept her, you know, in the house and just was a wonderful man. I remember former um, NBA star, basketball star, Charles Barkley. I don't know if you guys remember, follow NBA at all. He used to always say, I'm no role model. Parents are supposed to be role models. Well, he's probably right. Parents should be role models. But here's the thing. I don't think it matters so much about being a kind of role model. About, you know, making sure that you are the sort of role model, that I am the sort of role model. I don't think that's nearly as important as picking the right role models. See, if we pick the right role models, we'll become the sort of people we ought to be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.